What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Ari Paul is a voice of reason in a sea of emotionally exuberant traders and investors in the crypto community. In a time where copying and pasting other people's ideas is very widespread, Ari's complex and creative analysis using real metrics has proven to be a huge help for millions of Twitter users and investors, definitely myself included. He has an extensive background in derivatives trading and institutional investing and is currently the chief investment officer of Block Tower Capital. So he's speaking from a place of authority. It's my goal today to have Ari elaborate on some of his most notable analysis and hot takes and have him share what he's currently looking at as an investor and where he believes the market's headed. So Ari Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I appreciate the kind words, but very much still think of myself as a student of this incredibly fast changing industry. Uh, it can get very ugly the day that you don't, I think, in my experience, <laughs> probably a responsible, reasonable approach. So once again, uh, you are listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, which airs twice a week. I talk to your favorite personalities from the worlds of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. Anyone with a good story to tell. This podcast is powered by Blockworks, the fastest growing media company in the digital asset space. You can visit blockworks.co for access to the highest quality information in the space. I promise you will not be disappointed. And for all things uh, me, you check out the wolf of all streets.io. Now to get right into uh, today's episode, we're finally seeing Bitcoin uh, breaking out of the range that it's been in for forever, seemingly, which is a month. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, in the crypto world, that's like 10 years, of course. Um, and we're, we're recording this, people won't know, but just in advance of the uh, Coinbase direct listing. And I'm curious if you see uh, any correlation there between the movement or if you believe that the Coinbase listing will have much effect on price or the market as a whole? Um, I, I don't have strong opinions here. This is something we certainly, like my investment team, have been talking about this every day and, and trying to kind of develop theses around it. Um, there is at least some buying of Bitcoin that's been happening in anticipation that this will be a bullish event. So like a conversation we've been having is, well, does this listing actually produce immediate buying? So I think it is definitely a bullish kind of um, fundamentally bullish on a long-term horizon in the sense that uh, it legitimizes the space. It's going to create some wealth for a bunch of Coinbase people and early investors that will probably eventually go back into crypto. Um, it does produce publicity for the industry that the margin, I think, increases new signups, more retail buying. But most of those effects are not instantaneous. You know, and for example, even like the investors who are in the VCs who own a good chunk of Coinbase, they don't get their cash right away, right? Even if A16Z liquidates their position, it takes a while for that cash to actually hit the bank account of the investors and for them to then buy Bitcoin. So um, the, the, the bearish argument, which I'm, I'm not really making, it's just a possibility, is if all these people have bought Bitcoin into the listing and anticipation is going to be bullish, but then the listing doesn't produce immediate bullish follow through, does that cause a retracement, right? Do some of those levered longs then unwind? Um, so that's one possibility. Uh, it's definitely going to depend on valuation that comes out at. People um, don't have a good idea where, like, basically, we have early indications that largely come from prediction markets. So uh, Poly Market is a prediction market that, as of, I think I last looked two days ago, they were, they were forecasting 75 billion valuation. FTX has a market, and, and theirs was at, like, 120 billion at the same time. So a very widespread, even between two betting markets. Um, so no one really knows when this thing's going to come out. Um, if it comes out wildly above expectations at like 150 billion, I think that will be bullish the whole space. If it comes out below 75, that's probably at least short-term marginally bearish, which is going to be disappointing. Um, but even but both of those, I actually don't think would be like very long-term effects. Like if it comes out at 150, that really that's more of an indication of interest than it is a cause. And similarly, if Coinbase comes in at 70. That doesn't necessarily, that, that may just mean that there's more appetite for the assets than for the equity. So I, I wouldn't put a ton of weight on it, but as a short-term trader, we'll certainly be focusing on it. Well, even when they uh, reported their earnings recently, very, very well-timed about a week in advance of the direct listing, of course, even they alluded to the fact that they're largely, um, you know, tailing the price of Bitcoin and the bullishness of the, of the space, not leading it. Right. So yeah. it sort of alludes to what you just said. I think that there's a lot of people who are sort of mistaking, you know, what can happen with Coinbase could largely affect price or not realizing that maybe what's happened with Bitcoin is why we're here today with Coinbase. Agree completely. Yeah. So uh, that makes sense. And like you said, maybe as a trader, it's an exciting event. There could be some volatility 
And there could be that sort of buy the rumor, sell the news aspect to it. But I think as an investor, it's going to be completely forgotten in a month. Agreed. There may be a bigger impact on some other assets. For example, exchange coins have done very well recently. Yeah. Um, part of that's fundamental. Exchanges all have record signups. They're all have incredible volume, which generates you know cash flow, fees, and all that. Uh, but also, there's been a bit of a catch-up trade in exchange coins with the idea of being, well, if Coinbase is valued at 120 billion, why shouldn't Binance or FTX or whatever be valued? You know. Um, so those coins are probably more directly impacted in a more meaningful way by. Um, Right, because like if you're an investor in FTX or Binance Coin or Quobi, you don't really know what that coin should be worth. So this is kind of a third party giving you a value associated with metrics. Uh, so probably more impact there, but yeah, limited over. And 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 DEXs have similar, same story, right? So people are looking at Uniswap and saying, you know, why is Uniswap valued at 100 billion? So I think you'll, you'll also see potentially DEXs more directly impacted by the valuation. Yeah, BNB is a unique case, I think, in itself as well, because they launched the DEX, even though whether we can argue whether it's decentralized or not till till the cows come home. But you know, they launched launched Pancake Pancake Swap is doing larger volume than Uniswap, and obviously BNB behaves like Ethereum and in, in gas. So I think that it makes a, a lot of sense, even standalone, why maybe Binance Coin has done so exceptionally well with that use case and the utility. But like you said, a lot of it is just catching up. So do you guys, I, I'm curious, are you guys exposed to exchange coins? Is that something that you can discuss? I mean, what kind of, what kind of assets are you looking at yourself? Yeah, um, so we, we're active traders. We go in and out of positions potentially very frequently. So I'm, I'm usually averse to talking about specific positions, um, partly just because it can, it can be almost misleading. Like everything I say at this moment can be totally true. If your viewers see this in a week, like I might have totally changed my view. I mean, the space changes so fast that an asset I like, maybe I'm right and it goes up 5x by the time people see this, of maybe course. I'm wrong and I change my view, right? With that said, with that like disclaimer out of the way, um, we, um, at this moment, we have little to no exchange point exposure, uh, but that's not a long-term thing. We were in them heavier. We, we participated in the catch-up trade uh, as kind of, frankly, a consensus crypto fund manager trade. Um, it worked well for us. We just recently took profits on it. That's not a bearish call on the coins. It's just no longer have a view at the moment. Yeah, even as a retail trader, I was buying BNB and I sold it at 600 bucks because I wanted to sell it at 600 bucks. <laughs> I don't really care, right. right? Obviously, it's a sort of a different mentality as a as a trader, clearly, and an investor. So you had a tweet that went uh, exceptionally viral recently. I don't have the in front of me, but obviously the gist of that tweet was that um, the disproportionate upside in Bitcoin has somewhat eclipsed uh, and that potentially it's not going to be the best and most obvious trade moving forward. I agree with you. So it's something I would definitely love to hear your views on and yeah. hear you expound upon. It's it, as an investor in, in cryptocurrency, um, it, it's an amazing experience. Everyone, for everyone who's in the industry or, or, or even watching it, um, we're watching an industry kind of grow up in front of our eyes and achieve a different level of maturity. This is still a very young nascent industry in all regards, but we've gone from like to use a, a VC analogy, you know, Bitcoin in 2014, let's say when I bought my first one felt to me like maybe a series A, maybe investment in the sense that it wasn't even clear what the use, like there was debate within the Bitcoin community about the use cases and the product market fit, right? Is this going to replace, is, is this a competitor to credit cards because there's no chargebacks? Is it a payment rail? Is it, um, and, and everything else in crypto, I view the seed stage. Uh, what we've seen happen, like when I was investing, I, I basically didn't really have conviction in crypto until 2016. I, I had been buying earlier, but I didn't really believe. I didn't, it, it was more like, oh, this is a trade in my portfolio. In 2016, I really found conviction and the framing of my conviction was not, it was not that Bitcoin specifically will take over the world or Ethereum. It was, there's a clear value proposition here. DeFi and NFTs and digital store value will take over the world. Maybe it'll be the assets in front of me, but this is, I very much viewed it as a VC bet with a hundred to one asymmetric outside. It was like, so my view in 2016 was Bitcoin was 50, 50 to die in 10 years. And that still makes it the best investment I've ever seen because if it dies, okay, I get a zero. If it wins, I get a hundred X plus. That's an amazing investment, right? So where we are today is it has been de-risked a bit, but in my view, not that much in the sense that um, 
like I kind of took for granted that we'd see what we've seen, which is I was pretty confident we were already on the path to institutional adoption, that as long as nothing went wrong, this would kind of unfold the way we've seen. And the existential risks uh, are unchanged in my view, which is that proof of work consensus proves fundamentally broken in the face of much more sophisticated attacks. Um, that's probably the number one, frankly. Uh, and I'm not predicting that. I'm just saying that's the biggest risk in my view uh, of existential risk. So today, maybe I'd say Bitcoin is 30% to die in the next decade, not that big of a change from 2016. So the difference is really on the upside, which is, you know, in 2016, when Bitcoin was a thousand bucks, my view was it doesn't need to win to get to a hundred thousand. It just needs to get to kind of where it is today. It just needs to get more adoption, more people thinking it could win, just, just kind of more people discovering it and it gets a hundred X. Well, now we're, we're not there yet, but we're nearing a point where it actually has to win. It actually has to work at scale. It actually has to solve the problems that currently face it that make it more usable. So for example, like we need layer twos on Bitcoin that work and lightning isn't quite there yet today. Um, and by work, I, mean, I don't mean that it doesn't literally work. I mean, there works at scale, at scale. With, yeah. with, with reliability, where it's actually a solution for Bitcoin's kind of limited scalability. Um, or it, it might be Lightning, it might be one of the other, there's many, many projects that are now working on, on building out Bitcoin functionality and scale and all that. So, you know, what's the upside today? Um, you have people like Michael Saylor and of course, many of the Bitcoin OGs who think it could be global money. It could have a hundred trillion dollar market cap in 20, 30 years. Uh, my view on that hasn't changed since 2016, which is maybe I'm skeptical. Um, I'm not saying it can't happen, but that's not a bet I would make in a binary sense. Like to me, the odds of that are less than 50, 50, right? So at the moment, um, I think we likely have another 10 X ahead of us at some point in the next five, 10 years. And that would be kind of reaching gold, uh, at this point it'd be a bit more than gold. And that would, you know, Bitcoin isn't gold. It's a better gold. It's a better store of value. It, it, I think it takes a bit of the market share of offshore banking. Um, but if you think the upside is call it, you know, 10 to 20 X, that's just a very different value proposition than thinking it's hundred X to a thousand X. Yeah. And I saw the comments and people took it as bearishness, but it's <laughs> when you explain it obvious like that and say, listen, I'm saying it's a 20 and not a hundred. That's not right. bearishness. It's re being reasonable. But to, 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 to what you said, you talked about, obviously the issues we all know that exist with scaling and, and layer twos. What if none of that is ever solved and it just remains the better gold? Because gold's also not portable, right? So if we're just talking about the digital gold argument and the store of value, what if people just take it off exchanges and hide it away somewhere and just continue to hold it and there's minimal supply and there continues to be demand? Is that enough? Um, it's not, let's see, so that's an interesting framing. I, I, I think, so the technological problems are all clearly solvable. So in, in a literal uh, cryptography and engineering sense, so we now have interoperability. Like you can now take, you can do atomic swaps, for example, where you can tra effectively transfer Bitcoin onto Ethereum chain and vice versa. Right. So everything is fundamentally solvable. Um, they might be hard problems that take five to 10 years of engineering work and UX work to make it usable, but it is solvable. Um, I think the, 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 the risk there is more that uh, well, I guess there's two. One is that developers in the community are so slow at solving these problems that something eventually comes along and eats Bitcoin's lunch. Um, so that's one risk. I actually don't view that as terribly high because yeah. demand for Bitcoin is so high today. There's so much institutional buy-in that there's so much attention on solving these problems today, which you didn't have a few years ago. There was no financing for it, no funding. Um, so there's that. I think the bigger risk is that the problems are solved in a short-term way that creates existential kind of collapse risks, that creates kind of, um, you can think like very, very similar to financial markets that solve risk transfer with like CDOs, and then actually create a scenario where you just have a massive blow up of the whole system. So for example, if let's say, let's say we use lightning to scale and in four years, um, you know, banks are, are sending billions of dollars back and forth on lightning and lightning is, and let's say a backbone of the Bitcoin security model, let's say a meaningful percentage of minor revenues come from lightning indirectly settling on Bitcoin fees. Um, this is a very far-fetched example sure. off the cuff. So, uh, but you know, basically if part of the whole Bitcoin ecosystem, including its security model comes to depend on a layer two scaling solution and that layer two scaling solution fails, well, it doesn't kill Bitcoin, but it could functionally somewhat similar to like like I, like I think in 2008, if the Fed hadn't stepped in, we would have had global depression. If not for kind of crazy intervention, we would have had kind of the unraveling of, of everything. And it's not that banks would cease to exist fundamentally. Um, probably every existing bank would be bankrupt, but 
So it's not necessarily that Bitcoin like literally dies, but it could functionally, where then you have a 10-year crypto depression where people don't trust anything. And that does create the room for a new incumbent to come in with kind of a black slate. Or not a new incumbent, sorry, a new yeah. challenge uh, to come right, in competitor, sure. kind of from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's so far-fetched. I think that, that, that makes perfect sense. But it's interesting, you kind of pointed to the structural risk as the biggest risk in your mind when you, you know, it was 50%, now it's 30%, some kind of sophisticated attack. That's actually not what people talk about these days. They they almost have, they say Bitcoin is the most secure network, that's it. And it seems like everyone else has sort of disregarded any security issues, at least from what I see in these interviews that I do. And now everyone's sort of moved on to the regulatory risk and the governments and, and, and those things. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about you know, there being that structural risk or an attack because it seems like most people have put that in the rear view and view Bitcoin as fundamentally secure. It's actually very frustrating to me in that um, it's almost taboo in the sense that um, basically the people who have any understanding or have done any work on Bitcoin game theory and proof of work consensus, and, and it touches on, some of it is pure kind of game theory, but some of it touches on um, engineering issues. So like the whole big block, small block debate, one element of it was, does it encourage minor consolidation, centralization, having bigger blocks? And that that's a very detailed engineering question of, around network latency. So you have, so some of this involves multiple fields. Some of it is kind of a pure game theory question. Um, there's very few people who've spent real time on this and have um, kind of the acumen or, or, or just mental models to, to evaluate it. I actually don't think you need formal game theory training or, or high level math. You need uh, but you do need to have some framework for thinking about it. Um, the people who can basically refuse to. And I've been personally frustrated with this, trying to engage with them, where I basically say, guys, tell me why I'm wrong. Like, tell me what I'm not understanding here. And they can't. It's, it's, it's not that they, like, have the answers. It's more that um, it's obviously very, very unattractive, not just financially, uh, right? If you have giant Bitcoin bag holders and, and ecosystem players who are hugely bought in, they, right, they have every incentive for people to just treat this as fully secure. And then the other side, though, is psychological comfort. If you have all of your net worth in Bitcoin or, or in the crypto ecosystem, you want to, like, it's so uncomfortable to, to, to have this idea that this whole thing could actually be built on kind of a faulty premise. Um, so people don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I could take that a step further and say, even if you're not overexposed, there's reputational risk that people carry. And, to, and in my opinion, viewing this market and the way how strong the tribalism is and the way that maximalists react to any attack, even if it's reasonable, as you said, to me, it seems more like they're more worried about their reputation or being wrong than they would actually be about the asset failing. Totally agree. Although what's strange to me, frankly, was a surprise was even in private, so I get why in public the Bitcoin influencers have to say, this is sound money, it's secure money, blah, blah, blah. But even in private, um, there seems to be, I don't know if it's a lack of intellectual curiosity or just, or just they want to avoid the cognitive dissonance, but they don't even disagree. So like I, I'll, I'll walk through the biggest concern that I have briefly. Um, so all of the early discussion of proof of work. Satoshi was a very, very thoughtful person or persons, and there were early, early debates about the game theory and, and you know, skepticism and criticism. Um, but none of the early discussions incorporated one key thing, which is the ability to short sell. So if you think about the way Satoshi initially pitched proof of work, the idea was that the thing that secures Bitcoin is real-time electricity costs. It's that miners have skin in the game because they're paying for electricity. That never made any sense because some cost doesn't, doesn't secure future value and electricity is repurposable. So if I have to spend four hours of electricity to attack the Bitcoin network for four hours, um, th that is very, very little of a security mode. Yeah. The real thing securing Bitcoin through most of its history is some cost in hardware. So miners today probably own roughly, call it $12 billion worth of ASIC mining equipment that is not repurposable. That's a economic, economic cost and value that cannot be used for anything else. And so the owners of that equipment are only incentivized to attack Bitcoin if they can make more than $12 billion. Um, I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, but this is kind of directionally right. And so there's two issues. One is, can you make enough money attacking Bitcoin and make back your hardware cost? And two is, can you coordinate, right? So th there is a hard coordination problem here. What none of the, everyone who's ever done real work on the math, um, at least within the Bitcoin community, uh, not like academic kind of financial um, types, they, they neglect that you can short sell in size. And, the, and because you couldn't, right? So in 2010, you couldn't short sell 10% of Bitcoin's market cap. Today, that still keeps Bitcoin somewhat safe. 
So you cannot establish a $100 billion short Bitcoin position today, um, functionally. Um, we trade derivatives every day. We have pretty good insight into kind of like what you can actually do in the market. And like you can easily establish a $10 billion short today. 20 billion gets hard, 30 billion would be harder, and it kind of scales up uh, exponentially, getting harder and harder to find ways to kind of get that marginal short on. But as this industry becomes more mature, that's going to start looking more and more traditional. It's routine in the equity and commodity world that people can short sell 50% of the entire market cap of an asset. Sure. With a mix of spot shorting, derivatives, uh, whether it's something like CDS or options or swaps, right? All sorts of, uh, a comment someone made to me today was now that Coinbase is going to be publicly listed, puts on Coinbase are a proxy for puts on Bitcoin, and it just gives you another avenue to monetize an attack on the Bitcoin network. Um, that's not a huge one. If, if Coinbase listed 100 billion, maybe you can establish a $20 billion short on it within a couple of years. Um, so it doesn't, you know, we're not there yet. I actually think most of the game theory attacks I can come up with wouldn't work on Bitcoin today, but they're getting very close, scarily closer. They're within an order of magnitude today. So my concern would be, um, well, Okay, two versions of this. There's the economic actor and the state actor. The hard version, much, much, much less likely this happens, is that say a giant hedge fund with $200 billion says, here's our three-year plan. We're going to construct ASIC factories. Uh, we're going to buy up existing ones. We're going to buy um, enough manufacturing capacity that over three years we can build 51% of ASIC hash power. We're then going to establish a massive Bitcoin short position, and then we're going to mine empty blocks. And what the Bitcoin community says is we'd fork them off the network. Um, this, this conversation gets very detailed. I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep this really concise, but it turns into a, a subtle conversation about how valuable is Bitcoin if Bitcoin has to continually change its proof of work. Yeah, if, you have to fork off, if you have to fork off the network, then the security isn't there. Inherently. Right, and, and as soon as you fork once, the security of the network is now extremely low and the cost of attack is extremely low. So then you have to fork again in two months on the next attack and again. So it's, it's a temp, it basically it introduces a world where Bitcoin is constantly forking off attackers. Um, and how viable is that? How would that work? Uh, so that's if it's a economic actor, it's a heavy lift. It's probably a multi-year plan. But if it's a state attacker, it's free. So all China has to do to get 51% hash power is you go to every mining farm today with a gun, use bribery, coercion, or hacking. Um, and the hacking part is real too. So a few years ago, Bitmain had backdoors in some of their ASICs. Uh, basically all Bitcoin ASICs are, are manufactured in two factories today. How hard would it be for a state to have two operatives in those factories and ensure that there's a backdoor in there? Um, and the backdoors are not catchable. The, the, the Bitmain backdoor was found six months after the fact by luck. So these are not really catchable in real time. Um, so the point is there's a lot of attack vectors where a state could coerce hacker bribe to get existing hash power. Um, another scenario is that in the next bear market, when uh, price, from whatever level, price will decline at least, say, 40%, what that means is most hash power on the network becomes uneconomic. It's then sold OTC at fire sale prices. So basically, after a Bitcoin crash, buying up 51% of hash power becomes fairly easy because purely economic miners have zero value for it. But if you're willing to mine at a loss, because you're going to make $100 billion on a short, sure. that hash power is very valuable to you. So it becomes easy to acquire lots and lots of hash power, basically at a massive discount. So interesting. Yeah, taking advantage of minor capitulation in that scenario. And you, you laid out a first situ a first scenario where basically, you know, the loose math was you have to be able to make $12 billion because that's the cost of ASICs and miners. Well, as price continues to rise, if that number does not rise as dramatically, that becomes easier and easier at scale, right? Because this becomes a $5 trillion market cap or a $10 trillion market cap, but that equipment goes from 12 to 15. I don't know what the scaling is, 12 to 20. Yeah, huge, we'll see it's disparity. how fast does the mining equipment scale with the price? And that's a complex, there's an engineering element to that question. To be clear, I'm not predicting that this will happen. I, I view it as um, it's a very, very clear incentivized attack vector. Uh, we know there's people around the world who wanna make money and we know there's states that don't like uh, that impose capital controls and go aggressively after things that undermine state sovereignty and, and state money printing. Most countries around the world, um, uh, for counterfeiting is punishable by death because that's how much states care about their ability to control their money supply and to have seniority rights. So I, the, the point I'm making here is just um, there are known, clear, relatively simple attack vectors that appear to be incentivized that I have yet, I cannot find or think of clear answers as to why they're unlikely to happen. 
So not claiming it will happen. I, would, I, I wish people smarter than me would seriously engage on this because it might be that Bitcoiners can, uh, it might be that there's steps we can take to proactively prevent this. Sure. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, it's, it seems like uh, you would naturally want to pr- protect it as, as much as possible by, by thinking about the downside as well. But that, that's really interesting because you know, even if they don't take it at by force, you know, if the Chinese don't show up with guns at every miner and take them over, there's also regulatory paths where, you know, they can do effectively some of the same things. I don't think they can attack or take over the net- network, but they can sort of uh, make it very unattractive as you sort of pointed to earlier. Peter Thiel just made the comment that was taken wildly out of context that, you know, China could weaponize uh, Bitcoin. <laughs> not, not what he was saying if you read the entire thing, but, um, I mean, do you believe that regulation is still a huge threat? Not for Bitcoin in the Western world. Um, I'd be very curious to see what happens. My, my thesis on China for literally like 10 years was they would roll out central digital currency and then ban everything else, including gold, fiat, uh, paper money. Um, because once a country has the ability to have complete control and transparency over its monetary supply at the individual level, that's so much power. Why would you allow people to have tools to circumvent that? Right. And if, if you're a surveillance state and a totalitarian state like China is, um, I, mean, I mean, the answer might be because you have a constitution. That's why you're not going to prevent it, right? But for China, you know, so my assumption, I, and I have no special insight here. I, I'm not claiming this will happen, but my assumption is that within five years, China will ban Bitcoin, um, or at least they will ban using it outside of extremely tightly controlled and regulated channels. The only reason I think they wouldn't do that is if Bitcoin just isn't relevant. So if Bitcoin isn't a meaningful source of capital flight for Chinese people out of China, if Bitcoin isn't being used to fund Hong Kong dissident groups, if it's not being used to undermine state sovereignty, China might just not care. It's kind of like in the US, there's a lot of uh, psychedelic drugs that are not illegal. And they're not illegal because they just never caused a problem that would get legislators to think about them, right? Like if no one ever dies or commits a crime on some drug no one's ever heard of, you just don't bother making it illegal. Right. So laws generally arise in response to problems that the state faces um, or hopefully that their citizens face. But uh, so we'll see. We'll see. I'm very curious. Um, I, I expect a good chunk of the world to ban Bitcoin at some point in the next 10 years if Bitcoin is successful. Right. Kind of a catch 22. <laughs> the, the better it does. Yeah. The more well, I don't think the bans will kill it. So, I mean, if, if let's say, you know, in, in the countries closest to banning Bitcoin, major countries are India and China today. If India and China ban Bitcoin, that doesn't kill it. It causes potentially a temporary price decline, maybe a sharp one. But I actually don't view that as an existential risk uh, to Bitcoin. And at, at this moment, it looks almost impossible for the U.S. to ban Bitcoin in the foreseeable future. Like it would require. Um, so not only would it require legislation, uh, that legislation is probably unconstitutional. Like it's not even clear if the U.S. government can legally ban Bitcoin. Right. Um, Coin Center, who are a great legal team that do crypto lobbying, they've made a bunch of arguments that basically the U.S. government can't. And these are like sober, sensible arguments. At the very least, if Congress passed a law banning Bitcoin, it would get tested in the Supreme Court at a minimum. And under current legal theories, it seems unlikely that they could find a way to actually ban it. What they can do that's painful is just increase AML KYC type rules, increase- Make it impossible um, to- they can make it unpleasant and painful to run a crypto company, but as an individual, you want, you're unlikely to care about that. Like as an analogy, we can use drugs again, um, right? So you didn't have marijuana companies 20 years ago because you couldn't operate one legally, but plenty of people smoke pot, right? It kind of did as an individual, um, it mostly didn't matter that it was illegal. I say this as a privileged white guy, so I, I know there's a big distinction. There are plenty of people in jails for, mar- for marijuana consumption, so I, I don't want to you right. know, dismiss that. but. Should. Um, there is this distinction between individuals do illegal things every day and no one cares and no one bats an eye. It's regulated companies that actually have to mostly obey laws. Guys, it's time to wake up and go earn some money. One of the most exciting use cases of crypto is both to earn yield and take low interest credit loans, especially since your actual bank is giving you Nathan Nada nothing in interest. Nexo is leading the charge in this arena with 360 degree crypto banking services. If you're just looking to park your crypto, do nothing, earn some interest, you can make up to 12% a year by doing nothing. If you're in the market for a loan, they have them for as little as 5.9% APR and you don't have to sell any crypto, which we all know, especially in the United States, is a taxable event. Their credit lines are dynamic, which means that the value of your crypto goes up 
So does your available credit. Really cool and innovative and something I've never seen with any other platform before. You can check them out at thewolfofallstreets.link slash nexo, N-E-X-O, and put your crypto to work for you. Do you guys want to win a free Tesla? Because I really, really want to win a free Tesla. Well, good news is my friends at BitCasino are giving away a free Tesla. Put your foot on the gas, tear up the tournament track, and race into epic rewards and a chance to win a Tesla Model 3 performance. They're running it from April 12th to 27th. You can take part in 10 terrific highest win multiplier tournaments for a little bit of Bitcoin, and you will win Bitcoin prizes as you advance. You'll be playing Live Crash, which is packed capacity with awesome features. A small wager per tournament gets you in on the action, and you can compete against me because I will be trying to win a free Tesla. So sign up today for your chance to win and beat me. Register into each of the upcoming tournaments using my personal URL, thewolfofallstreets.link slash bitcasino for a special incentive. Feel the force with BitCasino and the Tesla promo. Guys, this is so cool. For the first time in history, rather than a company or project sponsoring the podcast and newsletter, a grassroots community is doing it. The Cosmos community is extremely passionate and active, and because of that, cool things like this sponsorship can happen. Their Atom token has been absolutely on fire and solidified itself as a top 50 coin by market cap, and the Cosmos platform has so much in store. Now, if you don't know about them, Cosmos is effectively the port city connecting chains like Bitcoin and Ethereum to ensure your liquidity on any chain can be used anywhere. One of the things I'm most excited about is their new DEX, which is coming out, which will connect to any blockchain. So you can swap ETH, ERC20, BSC, or any other token with Atom plus this DEX will have order books just like any centralized exchange, so it'll feel familiar trading just like you do anywhere that you've traded before. This is a first. It's never existed until now. You need to absolutely check them out at thewolfofallstreets.link slash cosmos, C-O-S-M-O-S, and see everything they have going on. If it is quote-unquote banned or they make it difficult or they effectively ban the on and off ramps, which is really what we're talking about, or make it extremely difficult then you come back to actually needing to be able to use it at scale, right? So you say that they can't ban a user, but what good is my Bitcoin if, if I can't get it to dollars and nobody accepts it, for example? Totally. So the, the I, I think we may at this point already be past that point in the, the crypto ecosystem. So we now have DEXs. Something that is a little bit lacking today is the ability to trade Bitcoin on DEXs, right? Most of the DEXs are Ethereum-based right. or Binance Smart Chain-based. That problem is being, I think it's close enough to solve that we're probably past the point of no return. There's already wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum, of course. The solutions there are all imperfect. Um, they're either trusting, they're, they either use a trusted third party company that's like a regulated custodian, or they use game theory and engineering that is a bit untested at this stage. But if in, you know, I think it's very likely that in a year or two, we're going to have trusted solutions to, to atomic swap Bitcoin onto Ethereum and access DEXs. Uh, and then even if every company can offer fiat on-ramps and on-ramps, we're probably at a point there where there's enough economic value in that ecosystem. And, and you're going to have some countries that haven't banned it, that there's still value there and you can still use Bitcoin, maybe not as a day-to-day -day payment rail, but as a store of value. I mean, as an analogy, um, Swiss banks are hard to use, right? It used to be you had to fly to Switzerland. Now you can do things remotely, but there's still, there, there's this friction, but there's still $30 trillion in there, you know? Um, so the state can impose friction, and in the earliest days of Bitcoin, that friction might have killed it. It might have just caught, failed to get network effects because the U.S. was so bad. I think we're past that point. Yeah, I mean, it's also my opinion. I don't know how it works uh, at that level, but the Michael Saylors and Elon Musks of the world, I feel like they make a phone call before they start exposing their company to, to Bitcoin. You know, like they've probably got a guy or some access to some information that would lead them to believe that there's no immediate risk that, uh, you know, the asset that they're publicly gaining exposure to is going to be banned. Well, certainly, and, and we're pretty in the weeds on this. Like when, when the stuff was happening last December with Mnuchin, we were daily having conversations with regulators and, and kind of insiders and trying to understand. And, and, for, and I can't say we did anything to shape the policy, but we were talking to the people who work. I mean, a lot of the um, kind of more, I don't want to name names because I don't know what, what they would want me to say, but um, you, you, you know, some of the giant Bitcoin holders who come from traditional finance, these, these traditional finance billionaires who also have a billion dollars in Bitcoin, they were personally talking to Mnuchin and, and Treasury Department officials and trying to steer them towards the best possible regulation. Um, so I, I feel like I can say with 
a good deal of authority that there's currently no no discussion of anything that comes close to a crypto ban. The opposite. The SEC is now run by Gensler, uh, who, sure. who taught blockchain at, I believe is what, MIT? MIT. Yep. He's unambiguously pro-crypto. Pro I, I mean, and Gensler may end up being viewed as a, as a villain in our industry because he does believe in enforcing existing security laws. And so he may go after DeFi, go after a lot of ICO type projects. Um, but he, but that it's not about banning crypto, it's just about enforcing uh, the, the laws around how you're allowed to sell crypto to other people, right? It's, it's enforcing laws like that. It's not banning the assets. It's saying, hey, if you want to sell this asset, you have to follow applicable laws. Um, same with FinCEN, same with the Treasury Department. They have no desire currently to ban cryptocurrency at all. It's all about applying existing AML KYC type infrastructure to prevent crypto from being used to finance terrorism, that kind of thing. So, um, this is not a concern imminently, uh, but you know who knows what could happen over four, six, eight, ten years. We'll have different people running the government. We'll have different regulators. We'll have a different social atmosphere. Sure. Um, at some point, I assume we're going to get a, pop a major populist pushback on crypto wealth. Where you know we had in 2017, you had like the New York Times article, like Bitcoin grows, everyone's getting hilariously rich, and you're not. Yeah. And now we're seeing with the environmental stuff, there's a little bit of a populist backlash against. Crypto as a whole is being very environmentally unfriendly that ties into social inequality and wealth inequality. I think that's going to get much worse. Um, there's no easier target in the world than the crypto rich in terms of people you want to hate, right? It's, it's, it's a large, it's frankly a lot of mostly young uh, white guys who got rich very, very quickly, most of whom I'll call it unearned. Um, meaning you, you have some entrepreneurs who literally built a protocol, great for them. The vast majority of people who got rich on Bitcoin and Ethereum basically clicked a button and then just were smart enough to not click the sell button for a long time. Yeah, and the, the idea that 10 of those people should be among the 20 wealthiest people in the world is going to create some pushback, right? I'm not saying it should, I'm just saying I think it will. And yeah, that could eventually lead to more adverse loss. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a reasonable, <laughs> reason, reasonable way to, way, way to view it. What's interesting is that you said um, that, you know, there's these billionaires who we know are billionaires, but we don't know, let's say, that they're actually billionaires in crypto. And, I, and we've seen sort of a lot of uh, little like the light waves of uh, hearing about it underneath the surface, I think, and it's bubbling. And a lot of my friends on Wall Street are now starting to talk about it. And I've found them, they're like, yeah, my, you know, like a, a guy at a hedge fund is like, yeah, my boss just told me he bought crypto in 2014. And I've never heard him mention Bitcoin ever. You know, so do you think that there is a somewhat massive exposure to the asset already uh, that we're just not hearing about because obviously it's not a public company or, you know, or someone who has to report it. Yeah. Um, it, it's very hard to guess how it, it's, it's kind of interesting. Like it's very hard to guess how much wealth someone has if they made it in crypto, because you have a bunch of Bitcoin OGs who, um, you know, maybe at one point had 5,000 Bitcoin, but let's say they sold half every time at 2x. Sure. Well, by the time it got to $100, they didn't have much left. And by the time it got to $1,000, they had one Bitcoin left, you know? So there's a lot, there's some Bitcoin core developers um, that people think have almost no Bitcoin because they were just selling on the way up. And then you have other people who, you know, just put $10,000 into Bitcoin in 2010, haven't touched it, and now have, uh, I can't do the math on that in my head, but now have $2 billion of Bitcoin, Brilliant. you know? And they haven't been involved, they're not public, they've never written a line of code in their life. They just put 10K in and haven't touched it, you know? So saying, so it's so hard to tell, um, you know, and the volatility in the space, the timing, if, if you, you know, I mean, just in the last three years, if you sold 19K, bought 3K and hold today and held to today, meaning if you time the 2017 top to bottom, um, you have one result. And if you did the opposite, even if you were a believer and a holder, but you just mistreated it, you end up with like 10% of the wealth today, right? So even if you were in at the same time, bought at the same time, your trading was a little bit different, you end up with 10% of the wealth of the other person. So incredibly... I mean, month to month, like when I talk to other crypto fund managers, we call, talk about returns and results. It's act, it's incredibly hard to anticipate what another crypto trader or investor earned in the last month, even if I knew, knew, knew their positions at the start of the month. Sure. The sizing matters, right? Like like if I and another investor both liked MobileCoin a month ago, but I sized it at 5% of AUM and they sized it at 50%, well, the, the asset was up 7x in a month. That leads to such a wildly different ending wealth outcome. Yeah, that that 
That makes perfect sense. I'm just curious how many of these guys that have never talked about it, who are public figures and are billionaires are actually exposed. And I think we'll start to hear about it more. Sure. I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, we talked a lot about uh, network risk. Um, and, and I know that you've talked about in the past, the general issues of security. I'm, I'm wondering, I guess you as a fund manager, but also as an individual in the crypto space, how much do you think we've solved the problems of personal security when it comes to crypto? I always argued, certainly in like 2017, that was the biggest barrier to entry. Your average person doesn't want to be your, their own bank. And certainly an institution doesn't want to uh, have their Bitcoin in a ledger, right? They needed custody, custodial solutions, things like that. How far do you think we are along you know, that path to where this becomes an asset and you don't wake up every morning going to check and make sure that you still have it? Yeah, um, we've made great strides, but still a long way to go. So on the institutional side, Coinbase has been getting checks from people like MicroStrategy um, on their custody suite. You've got Anchor Labs, Fidelity that are regulated trusted custodians. Um, that's obviously, my, I'm a big belief that this is less of a technological problem and more of a social perception one, which is how do you get comfortable trusting Anchor Labs or Coinbase as a custodian? So I can tell you, like, I did hundreds of hours of work underwriting custodians for where we want to custody our assets. We co-authored a paper with Anchor Labs on the technology behind it. And I felt like I had an amateurish understanding in terms of actually being able to underwrite the cryptography, the hardware, the software, and the social engineering. You know, MicroStrategy didn't do that. Tesla didn't do that. That level of, of and, and I'm saying I didn't do enough, right? Um, so the reality is we gain trust in technology just over time empirically. We don't question, you know, we, we don't evaluate the trustworthiness of a car by evaluating the internal combustion engine and like you know, grilling the engineers. We just kind of trust it works. Um, so we're, we're, we're close on that. I think the, the, what we can say that's done once like State Street offers crypto custody, which they'll probably do by like acquiring Anchor Labs or something like that. Um, and it's not about a tech improvement. It's just about adding that brand, right? And maybe some trustworthy, trustworthy insurance on that. On the individual side, in some ways it's harder. So um, I've been disappointed. To me, the personal storage solutions have not really changed much since 2017. You're still looking at like hardware wallets, which are, mediocre um I, like I, i've used many of the popular hardware wallets they break constantly like if you initialize four ledgers two years later and you keep them in a, a bag that's like airtight watertight two years later odds are two of them have malfunctioned so it's um now that doesn't mean you lose your money if you back up your seed but then how do you back up your seed securely so you can maybe put it in a safety deposit box but are you, but then you're trusting a bank with all your money, not just a bank, you're trusting every bank employee, right? Anyone who opens that safety deposit box has access to all your money. So, um, and then you, you can come up with creative solutions, but there's nothing that's like a standard, simple, tell grandma to do this and she doesn't have to worry that her life savings are safe. Um, so I don't, yeah, I think it's actually still a pretty big problem uh, that is more a UX problem than anything else. The technological primitives are all there. It's assembling them in, operationally easy and user-friendly ways. Then clearly there's a philosophical problem as well, because if you're a hardcore Bitcoiner, the whole thing obviously is, you know, short the bankers, long Bitcoin, be your own bank, all of those sort of memes that we hear, but your average person wants nothing to do with that. And if we want the space to grow and you want mainstream adoption, effectively you have to want banks to custody individuals, crypto. At least for now, um, eventually we may have trusted decentralized solutions that look and feel like a bank app that we may get there. We're not there yet. Um, it's, I mean, yeah, at the individual level, individuals just custody with Coinbase or Binance or their exchange of choice and are happy with that. I mean, Coinbase, I don't know the latest numbers, but they have something like $140 billion. Uh, and, and no, I'm not exactly right on that, yeah. but somewhere in that vicinity, just, I mean, $140 billion of crypto is sitting at Coinbase. So clearly users trust Coinbase more than they trust themselves. And that is a systemic risk. That is a problem for any proof of stake network. Like if Ethereum transitions to proof of stake, um, it's a real problem if a huge percentage of all ETH is owned by one or two or three exchanges. Those exchanges then control the network. Um, so, you know, and there are ways to work around that at the protocol level, but no, I, I agree these are still hard problems that still need a lot of improvement. Yeah, and that 140 or whatever number it is, billion that's sitting on Coinbase, a lot of those people have SMS text authentication on their account and get SIM swapped and it disappears anyway. So regardless of what Coinbase does or how secure it is, they people don't know to take the basic minimum steps. So to me, 
you still have this problem where you're your own, you know, point of uh, a greatest point of weakness for security. Yeah, and, and you can't really take full responsibility for that in the sense that are we going to ask every individual to evaluate the ledger hardware to literally, right. like I'll tell you something that I do every time I receive a hardware wallet is I literally open it up and I compare the chip that I see to the chip schematic provided by the manufacturer. Well, that, that's not foolproof at all. All it does is prevent very simple man-in-the-middle attacks, but that's already crazy, right? Are we really going to ask like grandma to be looking at chip schematics? And that doesn't even solve the problem. All that or ask her not to is, buy it on Amazon where she's used to buying things where right. it could have been a third party. She's not going to know that. Right. And so even if, um, you know, so at the end of the day, you're trusting a third party, period, because you're trusting the ledger company is manufacturing trustworthy hardware or you're trusting the software where, you know, like how many people are actually can evaluate the cryptography behind anything, right? You can't, so you're trusting a kind of general consensus that um, the cryptography actually keeps your money secure, the hardware or the software or whatever keeps your money secure. And that, that functionally works. Over time, we build up kind of uh, this web of trust where we have trusted experts, we have trusted brands. Um, and where it leads to problems, where it breaks is when you end up with extremely concentrated uh, systematic risk that blows up, right? So Coinbase is a problem because so much money has been entrusted to them. And I'm not saying it's a mistake. It's just if something ever goes wrong with Coinbase, that will break proof of stake protocols. They'll, they'll simply break, right? Because a single thief will now control the network. And even for proof of work protocols, it, it'll be a fundamental problem. So it's... um. I don't think, I think this is like an existential challenge for humanity. We face this whenever we talk about too big to fail in finance, right? Like, so if this was the debate in 2008, it was the, a core problem here is we had a few financial institutions that were too big to fail. Should we fight to have many more smaller financial institutions? But then there's the argument that competitive forces drive consolidation. And if US banks are small and foreign banks are large, the US banks are just gonna lose because there's economies of scale. So there's this natural trend towards consolidation over economies of scale. And beneficial ones too. Like, or do we want to ask grandma to evaluate 50 different hardware manufacturers? Or do we want to be able to say there's two trusted brands in the industry? Just trust the trusted brands. So it's it's to me, this is not a perfectly solvable problem. We'll just iterate our way towards a workable solution. It's interesting. Um, I, I'm curious your position on DeFi. So there's a lot of people who are obviously maximalists about it and say it will replace the current financial system. I, I personally don't believe that at all. I believe more that it can be a uh, parallel system that offers a small percentage of the uh, population, you know, uh, another option or, or an opt out. Uh, what are your thoughts on DeFi moving into the future? I mean, we know that it's immature now, but do you think that it can get to a point where it becomes a legitimate contender to legacy financial systems? Yes, I think so. There's the legacy fine financial offers a lot of different services. Some of those are more at risk than others. Um, so like, I think one of the, the lowest hanging fruit for DeFi to basically um, not fully replace, but to take massive market share or exchanges. And that's what the market's pricing. So if Coinbase listed hundred billion, it will be more valuable than NASDAQ than the two largest exchanges combined. It'll be more valuable than NYSE and CME and Philadelphia exchange combined. Um, Exchanges, and, I, and I, that's Coinbase, but I think there's there's no reason why DEXs won't eat the majority of exchange market share over the next 20 years. I think they are an order of magnitude improvement along multiple axes. The, the idea that you can have 24 seven instantly settled trading, total transparency, um, lower fees and lower costs, and no geographic, uh, like, like a really weird thing about the securities markets, they're effectively geographically isolated from one another. Sure. Um, if the same stock is listed in China and the US, you actually can't arbitrage it. Like in the US, we trade Chinese ADRs. Um, and it's not even cases where the same exact X security will trade in the UK and the US, and you need to be basically a prime broker to be able to actually arbitrage it. So um, there's just huge improvements from the DEX model uh, and then we're going to have much, tons of iteration on that. I'm not saying the existing DEXs are perfect, but there's so much experimentation on different market making models and things like that. So I think it's very plausible that in 20 years, 80% of all exchange volume will be on DEXs. Um, not 100% because centralized players will find ways to carve out niches for themselves, like curation. For example, like uh, Hayden, the founder of Uniswap, um, posted something like uh, NYSE offers whatever it is, like 5,000 stocks. Uniswap offers 36,000 trading pairs after three years of operation. And I responded, and I don't mean that this is a criticism at all. Uh, Hayden's done amazing work. Uniswap's great. Hayden's a smart guy. It's not meant as criticism, but I responded that the 90s value proposition is curation. 
It's right. always been possible to list more easily and cheaply elsewhere. The NYSE, that's not a, that's not a, a, a bug, that's a feature, right? The whole idea of NYSE is we are a stamp of approval. We do diligence on any company that lists with us. You can invest with confidence. Any company with us, sure, it might lose money, it might fail, but we've at least done some level of screening to weed out the frauds. Uniswap doesn't, right? People lose, people get rug pulled on Uniswap every day. People fall for explicit scams on Uniswap every day. So there's always going to be demand for curation and, and there'll always be demand for centralized curation to some degree. Um, other services uh, are very different. So what's a good one that, that is much more centralized? Um, you know, deal making, like investment banking. Um, you know, we may have someday see some of that happen in things like DAOs, but you're never going to fully replace an entrepreneur and an investor meeting over dinner, forming a relationship, a strategic partnership, sharing ideas. And, you know, that, that's never fully automated. There, there's fundamental value in the human relationships. So um, like investment banking, I would say, would be one of the later things to get disrupted. I mean, at the most basic level, though, the very fact that you can earn yield in DeFi and you can't in your bank, I think, is the greatest value proposition, personally. It is, although banks can offer that. So I actually, I don't view that as a differentiator because uh, and banks are looking at this and Coinbase is looking at this where you put your money on Coinbase and then Coinbase will, will get the yield for you. So they already do this, right? If you have uh, US dollars as USDC on Coinbase, they pay you a yield. And I actually don't know what Coinbase is doing on the back end, but easy to imagine a centralized institution offering customers yield on deposits when that institution is then on the back end, DeFi yield farm. So it's not um, there. It's just the UX. Would I, as an individual, prefer yield through that centralized intermediary or via something like Urine Finance, which is basically a decentralized hedge fund, right? It's kind of like like a framing is like we're an investment firm that aims to do strategies. There's now decentralized strategies that we're competing with, right? If, if, you know, and I, I actually think this is going to be direct competition. I think um, to some degree, some types of hedge funds are going to be directly competing with DAOs and with projects like Urine Finance uh, and already are. But that the scope of that competition is going to grow, but it never ends completely. So similar to how um, passive market vehicles, like you can now get exposure to some quantitative strategies in exchange traded notes, commoditized. You can get option sell op, uh, yield strategies that are basically selling out of the money options every month in an ETM now, basically paying just a management fee. That used to be a two and twenty hedge fund strategy. So the same is going to happen in crypto, but there's always that next frontier that requires active management, ongoing involvement, and that you're going to be betting on a team to execute for you. Whether that team is using a hedge fund structure or a DAO structure, you're going to care that you know the team that's doing that's allocating your money for you. Well, that makes sense. I was speaking more for just your average person who says, my Bank of America bank account is giving me nothing and I can go on you know, Voyager, BlockFi, Celsius, Nexo, you name them and get 9%. They don't obviously understand the risk. Those yields are, I, worth noting though, those yields are not sustainable. So th there's two sources of yield in DeFi, neither are sustainable. One is inflationary rewards, right? Where a project is minting new tokens and airdropping it. And the other is basically there's massive, people today are paying 20% to borrow US dollars in a crypto ecosystem. And they're doing that because they can take that money and arbitrage perpetual futures and uh, the, the, yeah, the perpetual futures and the futures curve. And that arbitrage is there because speculators are so bullish on crypto, they're willing to pay 50% annualized to get leverage betting on it. None of that lasts forever, right? All right. of that is a, bull, a temporary bull market phenomenon. So it's not that DeFi doesn't provide higher yields existentially than, than CeFi. It's a quirk of the moment. There are other competitive advantages, but higher yields is not one of them. That, that, that actually makes perfect, perfect sense. I mean, that lends to, so we obviously know that a lot of these CFI, DeFi, whatever you want to call them, platforms were taking advantage of the grayscale arbitrage, you know, the, the grayscale premium, which has since disappeared. And now it sounds like, as you're alluding to, there's sort of this cash and carry trade that seems to be the big trade now where, you know, buy spot, short the future, and, uh, you know, it decays in between and you basically can't yeah. lose while that while that exists i mean yeah but again nothing you need risk. to defy or crypto about that right that exact same thing can happen in centralized finance if there's enough bullish spec like the analogy here would be like if people are buying gamestop calls at 500 ball you can you can earn a multiple 100 percent return selling them and hedging by buying spot so it's it's just a function of speculators willing to pay that yield and that is nothing from my perspective that has very little to do with DeFi. DeFi does allow lower friction, more efficiency, instant leverage. DeFi allows many amazing things, but higher yields are not existentially one of them. 
Right. So it's basically a, a temporary phenomenon because you have a platform that's willing to do it for you and you can just park your money and not think about it. But eventually, yeah. eventually those either disappear as we saw with Grayscale or your average, you know, so yeah, I mean, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious when you guys are, I think your average person doesn't know how a fund trades or how, you know, you really move your money around or what kind of, uh, you know, not necessarily what kind of assets you're trading, but what kind of strategies you're using. I'm curious at, at a very basic level, uh, how do you guys manage these huge positions? I mean, you talked about the fact that someone can get a $20 billion short on Bitcoin and it becomes more difficult at 30, 40, 50. How does that work at scale from, you know, from the institutional side? Yeah. So um, while real volumes are pretty amazing today, there's definitely at least $10 billion a day of real Bitcoin volume. It is everything in crypto is a little bit less liquid than the numbers suggest because it's such a momentum driven market. So I like from personal experience, if we're taking the opposite side of the trend, infinite liquidity, right? Like if Bitcoin's rallying and you want to sell a billion dollars, no problem. If Bitcoin's rallying and you want to buy a billion dollars, you may have to push and you want to do it quickly in let's say an hour, you may single-handedly push the price up 5%, uh, maybe more, right? Depending on, on just how, how, how much sell-side liquidity there is. So um, part of that is fundamental of the assets. You don't read, this is such a fundamentally momentum driven market because it's all network effects. There is no liquidation value, right? There's no, this isn't like, um, like Benjamin Graham, uh, you know, cigar cuts. Like with Walmart, for example, there's some price where even if you're not an equity investor, you say, this is a buy, right? Like I could literally buy the entire company and just sell off its, its real estate and I make money. So there's some price where new pools of capital come in as buyers of last resort, even if they would never normally be equity investors, because they're just like, this is such a streaming buy, and I can't lose money on this because I literally liquidated bankruptcy. That doesn't exist for crypto. There's no floor, right? If, um, if Bitcoin falls to $1,000 and stays there for three months, I would actually say it's likely to die. And, and that, that's a whole complex discussion. But maybe it's a great buy speculatively, but, but it's not a value investment. Right. These basically, the more valuable Bitcoin is, the more valuable it is, because the more secure it is, the more network effects, the more liquid and vice versa. So that means that people are rationally, largely momentum traders in crypto. Um, and that means you don't really have this kind of broad market making that exists in traditional markets where you have buyers and sellers of, of it, same true on the sell side. Right. So there's some price where we'd all look at Tesla and every institution would sell it. If Tesla was trading at, you know, a five trillion dollar valuation every institution would, would take profits. They would say, this is so clearly overvalued. I can't be sure it won't be higher tomorrow, but you know, um, whereas in crypto, that's not true. The, the people who are convicted become more convicted as the price goes up, rationally so, right? Bitcoin at 60K may be a higher conviction buy than Bitcoin at 3,500. It's a more secure network. It's more valuable. It's closer to being usable as global money. So because of that, um, yeah, because of that, it basically trend following liquidity is very minimal. Um, to put some hard numbers to it, if you wanted to trade $10 million of Bitcoin instantly, no problem. You might need access to a few different exchanges. So one issue with crypto is liquidity is very fragmented, right? right. There's no single crypto exchange with more than 25% of volume. So like when we trade, we route orders. Uh, well, we'll do it in a lot of different ways. It depends on the asset and the time frame. But um, typically, we're using a smart order router that will send orders to eight different platforms, right? So that's the premise, um, right. but you, you tend to get very similar fills if you use a good OTC desk, like a Cumberland, a Galaxy, a Genesis. That's what they're doing. They're routing to every platform and they're giving you a price plus five or 10 basis points. So if you want to do $10 million of Bitcoin, you're probably going to pay 10, 15 basis points to do it. No problem. If you're doing a hundred million, you're going to have a little bit of slippage under most market conditions. Maybe uh, if you're trying to do it over an hour, maybe 50 basis points of slippage, maybe 1%, but still, the price is real. You're going to get your hundred million, maybe less than a million in fees. If you're trying to do a billion, it's questionable. You know, then you're talking about maybe moving the price five percent or even ten percent yourself, depending on how you execute. And beyond the billion, it's purely speculative. Can you actually sell ten billion dollars today? You can, but you might end up selling the last piece of forty thousand. Depends on the market conditions. Um, everything I just said applies to every other coin, just magnified. You know, you just change the dollar amount. So on a small cap coin. Um, you know, if you have a coin with 100 million market cap, it may it may trade, actually trade $50 million a day. The minute there's an impulse one way or the other, the minute there's a clear buyer or seller, all that liquidity is gone and it feels like there's no liquidity at all. Yeah, the, the, the walls get pulled. So that said, how do you, 
then determine which of these smaller assets are worth trading and, and going out of your way to obviously be able to gain that exposure without moving the market and experiencing those things? Um, we, we just have to, to uh, adjust sizing and time frame. So if I'm doing like, I'm not doing a one hour trade in a small cap Right. So, so on uh, like literally the way we think of it is just a function of slippage and edge. So we'd say, okay, um, like we won't look at a small cap unless we're targeting at least a 50% gain, right? It's just not worth, um, because generally like we have to do at least a few million dollars of a bet for it to move the needle. And if something's a small cap name, we're not, we're unlikely to be able to do a million, you know, a few million bucks without moving at 5% ourselves. So we routinely move assets 5%, 10% even ourselves on the small caps to get into and out of positions. And that's fine if you get a three X out of it, right? You gave a 20% slippage, you're the 200% return on it. You know, um, that is an amazing thing about crypto that there are these huge diseconomies of scale that benefit the small investor, right? So in traditional markets, um, this is something I think about a decent amount in terms of like structuring an investment burden. Basically like there's kind of two types of strategies to oversimplify. You have strategies that you can only do at big scale. So for example, corporate bond investing, you really can't do it with less than $50 million because the bite size is a million dollars per bond. And if you want to diversify portfolio, right? If you want to be an active trader, like you really can't do it with $5 million. You need a pretty big portfolio. Um, and there's other types, like I, when I was at Sussman International Group, I used to trade uh, natural gas strips. A single contract would be $80 million notional. And this was a very volatile asset. So you really couldn't trade, the trading I was doing, you really needed a quarter billion dollars or you just couldn't do these kind of relative value trades, right? Um, and then you have trades like, for example, trading S&P 500 futures on momentum and mirror version where there's no economy of scale. You don't need bigger size. Bigger size only hurts you. You just have more slippage. So in traditional finance, what typically happens is for the non-scalable strategies, the strategies with diseconomies of scale, people do them at prop shops and they get to keep say 50% of what they kill. Um, they, that means you take home 50% of your profits, which you know, of course, I'm saying that for the, uh, you know, um, and then stuff that's scalable, that gets run in something like a hedge fund or bank vehicle, and the trader only gets to take home 5 or 10% of what they make. And that feels unfair, but those are strategies that that trader couldn't do without a bank balance sheet. And so, yeah, you're only taking home 5%, but maybe you're making $300 million of profit on a $3 billion book. 5% of that is still pretty attractive. So all of crypto today, with rare exceptions, is the prop firm model. It's stuff that you can't scale or, or that you're giving up value to scale. Um, that makes it very hard to run a crypto investment firm because it's a lot of fun to be retail. Volume, what's that? It's a lot of fun to be retail. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like, because if I find a great crypto trader, if basically if someone's a great crypto trader today and they've been in the industry for a couple of years, they should have some money of their own. Like even if you started with 10,000, if you're, if you're a great crypto trader, you should have some, a little bit of money of your own and you get infinite leverage from exchanges, right? You can go hundred to one lever. So uh, it's not like I, if, so someone with 3 million bucks can be running easily a five or $10 million portfolio. And how do I incentivize them, right? If, if Block Tower is only collecting a percentage of what we earn, and I can only give an employee a percentage of that, um, so that's a real challenge. So one thing we're very focused on is like, how do we find those economies of scale? What structural advantages can we get? And so one example is um, borrowing costs. So because of our brand reputation, professionalism and relationships, we're able to, we have a lower cost of capital than basically anyone else. We can get non-recourse loans, for example, that we can then deploy into DeFi or curve rates that are, that are you know, I'm not saying it's higher than other, other funds in the industry or anything, but it's higher than you as an individual can get. Um, higher in terms of, uh, more attractive, I mean, like lower cost of capital. Um, another thing is like exchange fees, right? We can negotiate lower exchange fees than you can right. get as retail. We can negotiate non-recourse uh, loans. We can, um, but but those are few and far between. I would say retail in some ways has advantages over us. Yeah. And so what you described with the Bitcoin trade, obviously um, at those different levels of scale, doesn't that make it sort of laughable for when people talk about Apple Google, Facebook, sovereign wealth, endowments, uh, you, you name it, right? Doesn't it make it basically too small for them still? I mean, at what, what market cap do we need to be at where those numbers change and these guys can confidently know that if they had to exit quickly, they'd be able to do it? Um, yeah, so I, I think the way this plays out is what we've seen, which is people gradually buying bigger and bigger slices and bigger institutions doing it. And then the market cap rises and then the next wave buys. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a funny catch 22 that you're like, 
this asset class is too small to be investable. I'm going to wait for it to 10x or 100x and then yeah. I'll buy it. Buy it higher. But yeah. that is how people think. And I, I have to say, actually, I, I always laughed at that. I always like mocked that. I fell for it with NFTs. So I've been extremely bullish on NFTs for five years. And Block Tower, we as a firm have been bullish on it. I had one of my analysts spending uh, half his time on NFTs and gaming for the last four years, even when there was very little to invest in four years ago. Like I was that I was a huge believer this would be a huge opportunity set. And like a year and a half ago and a year ago, I was looking closely at the space and spending time. And I'm like, I just don't see how Block Tower can deploy $50 million into this. Right. I just don't see it just it's I see huge opportunity for an individual. And I made the mistake of, we, we did write some checks, we, we did have some investments, but nowhere near what we should have had. And I made the mistake of, of what we should have done is said, let's, let's buy a basket, like actually a trade I thought about doing and I didn't do, that is one of the worst tr mistakes of, of my trading career, because I, I seriously consider this, was buying a basket of CryptoPunks a year and a half ago. And it was like, this won't be operationally that hard. We don't need to be like super smart. I'm just very confident CryptoPunks is one of the seminal uh, NFTs is going to do very well in the coming NFT boom. Why don't we just, you know, even if, even if we put a million bucks in, if that 10X is, it's not a huge win for us, but you know, that's worth doing. We'll take us a few hours to assemble a basket. And I didn't do it because I was like, if I can only put a million bucks into it, it's not worth my time. And, but I, I, I was so bullish on it that I thought that I was very confident that they would at least 10X and they've done much better than 10X. Yeah. But, um, so I, it is a fallacy, this idea of like, I have to wait for this market to be big enough. Um, the reality is they should just get in and size it smaller. But I, having made that mistake myself, I can understand it. Well, I know that we are unfortunately up against it against uh, up against it on time here because I feel like I could ask you about a thousand more questions. But so, where can everybody keep up with you after this and, and uh, follow you, and uh, obviously follow what you guys are doing at Block Tower? Uh, I, I am too present on Twitter at Ari David Paul. You and me both, buddy. <laughs> I, I think that's a that's a problem uh, across the industry for all of us. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really, really insightful and valuable uh, content, and I can't can't wait to share it with everyone. And I'm definitely gonna have to have you back down the road because, like I said, there's a lot more questions I like to ask. Sounds good, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Let's do it.